Few industries inspire passion like sports, but the business of sports has created issues that are too complex for the casual approach that we enjoy in typical sports talk shows. We've developed this podcast to host in-depth conversations about those topics with people who can help us learn. So grab your favorite beverage and join us for Intelligent Sports Talk in the Coffee Pod. So today on the Coffee Pod, we have a special guest with us today, Dr. Angela Lumpkin out of the Sports Management Department here at Texas Tech University. Well, the, the experience you've had in the sporting realm in particular has been amazing. I mean, you, you coached, and we'll go into this later, but you coached at UNC Chapel Hill for years and... And uh, I want to hear all about that. You've talked about how uh, Coach Dean Smith, who was probably one of the more prolific coaches in all of NCAA men's basketball, is one of your idols. And I would imagine that you've known him on a personal level. Before we get all to that, I, w- I want to hear kind of how it started. One of the, my favorite things to hear is just kind of the paths that people have taken that have been presented to them that they've taken advantage of. Because I think that's kind of what life gives you. You can't really ever plan out exactly what you want to do, but you can prepare. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it, Harper. Uh, I'm a native of the state of Arkansas, and I grew up in a small town. And at that particular point in time, if you wanted to play any high school sport, you played basketball. So I was an avid basketball player simply because that was the only opportunity that existed for females at that particular point in time. I have a mother who hates sports and a father who's passionate about sports and basketball he played in high school. It's kind of interesting because it, as I moved around with my father's career, I ended up graduating from the same high school my father did. Actually, at that point in time, we played in the same old gym for my freshman through junior year. It was a very old gym. It was my father's gym, so that could give you an idea of how bad the conditions were maybe. But he loved basketball and loved baseball, and so I'm an avid fan of those, both of those two sports through my father. And so I played basketball in high school, and I wanted to play in college, but when I went to the University of Arkansas my freshman year, they had no women's basketball team because Title IX was just being passed in the federal government, and Arkansas was a football school at the time, and they had some other sports, but none for females. And so I just went about playing intramurals and going about my academic work. And then my second year, which happened to be my junior year because I went started in summer school and did well in my classes and so on. And so my junior year, or my next to the last year at Arkansas, one of the physical education teachers volunteered to coach the team, and everybody played out of the love of their wanting to play. We bought our own uniforms. We paid our own expenses. She coached for free. It was just the fledgling beginning of of college athletics. We played a handful of games in the state. That was it. And same thing happened my my senior year. And it was right when women's basketball was changing. I played high school basketball three against three. I like to tell my students that I averaged over 30 points a game in high school. I don't bother to tell them that only three people could (laughs) shoot. Uh, But they're very impressed that I could shoot. But uh, to give you an idea, my sister played her senior year, and she hates sports, but she played because we didn't have enough players. And her job was to throw me the ball so I could shoot because she could not shoot. But that was fine with her. That was, that was so her what view. position did you play? Just curious. Well, it was, it, there was basically three on the uh, side, and I would be what we would call today a point guard. Okay. 
but there weren't guards and forwards and centers because right. there were only three of them, and you were restricted to half of the court. So in college, I don't, I wouldn't consider myself that good. I'll, if you wanted me to shoot, I was great. If you wanted me to play defense, mm, that was a little suspect. Right. <laughs> when I got to coaching, I could coach offense much better than I could coach defense. Like Steph Curry, right? I mean, yeah, that's how he is. I was not any good like that. <laughs> I mean, I could shoot, but not, not like he could a mile away. Um, so I, I did play for two years in, in uh, college, and then I graduated, and I went to Ohio State, and primarily to get my master's degree, although I got an opportunity to get a fellowship, so all of a sudden I was going to be going there for my Ph.D., which just happened. And literally, I was playing some badminton, one of my other favorite sports that I played in the backyard, and I learned that they were looking for an assistant coach with the women's basketball team. So I said, okay, I'll do that. And literally, I was a volunteer assistant coach at Ohio State as a master's degree student. And wonderful opportunity. Uh, I was just beginning to, to kind of live out my dream because I always wanted to be a high, a high school coach, just like I had been a beneficiary of that and as a player, and teach physical education, which was my undergraduate degree. And so I was a volunteer associate, excuse me, assistant coach at Ohio State. And I did that for three years. So my one year with my master's degree, and I got my Ph.D. in two years. And so for three years, I was the assistant women's basketball coach at Ohio State. Got my doctorate, and so I was looking for a job where I could coach and teach. And believe it or not, in women's sports at that particular point in time, everybody was doing, like Pat Summit, Pat Head Summit, mm -hmm. went to Tennessee in the same kind of situation that I went to the University of North Carolina. We were teachers and we were coaches. So I got the opportunity at Chapel Hill uh, to be the women's basketball coach, head coach, just for three years as being an assistant at Ohio State. And so I started coaching there, and I, I just did not know very much. And that's how I got connected with Dean Smith, because he was so gracious, because he had closed practices. And he would let me sit in on his practices. So you, literally, I would watch him conduct a practice so I knew how to do what I was doing. I would been an assistant coach, but to organize a practice and so on. So that was great. And I got to know him and learn from him because, again, he was so generous. I was teaching full-time and I was coaching full-time. And that didn't last too much long, too long, simply because it's hard to have a, two full-time jobs. And I was on a tenure-track position, which meant I had full-time teaching responsibilities, full-time research responsibilities, service responsibilities, and, oh, yeah, I was the women's basketball coach. And, and Coaching women's basketball didn't go towards any service. Oh all? no, it was strictly. Uh, it was just like it. You, you can imagine in high school, you teach all day, and then you coach in the afternoon, evening, and that's exactly how women's sports began. It was literally a modeling right after the high school scenario, and even I had I was the assistant tennis coach too. So I was not only the head basketball coach, that I was assistant tennis coach in the fall and in the spring, and the basketball coach and a full time faculty member. Uh, as I said, that didn't last too long. And so I got out of coaching simply because uh, I couldn't do two jobs. And I convinced North Carolina to hire the first full-time women's coach. And I, it had to be in basketball, I said. And I thought about applying, and I decided that I love teaching more. And that was one of the hardest decisions I ever had to make in my life. I love to teach. And the other thing that influenced this is that I decided that my future as a recruiter was probably pretty slim. Hmm. And basically, I was a little too honest to be a recruiter. 
And so I decided I, with... <laughs> I, there, I believe there's a story there that I may have heard that I think would be amazing to hear again. Okay, all right. I'll, I didn't know if you wanted me to share, share that. <laughs> I, I did, shared it in the class we're, yeah. we're talking about. I was sitting in the living room with a gal, um, high school senior, and her parents, and I asked her very innocently, what do you want to major in when you go to college? And so she said, well, it's either going to be math or computer science. Now, again, you got to put it in the context. I was at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. The first words out of my mouth were, then you need to go to NC State because they have the best programs in those two areas. Driving home that night, I thought, eh, I'm not going to be a very good recruiter because I'm much too honest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she went to NC State and had a great four-year career. Right. And again, looking back retrospectively, it really is who I am as a person. I, I was very Absolutely. much in character to say that. And it was really neat to see her years later and know that she had had a great experience. And at that point in time, there there wasn't professional women's basketball, and it was the right decision for her. Mm-hmm. Really, one other thing that I want to point out as well is um, your career and kind of the how you've looked at sports in its purest form has really led to kind of how you see these things from an ethical standpoint. And I think that goes – it's really just kind of in your character to be ethical, to love sports for sporting reasons – and to look at it from an ethical perspective, which also we'll get down into in the road in this podcast because you do teach ethics and morality in sport in particular that I really want to hit on because I know you have a lot of good insights. I've already heard a lot of them. Uh, but before we do that, so I want to hear after you decided coaching wasn't for you, you wanted to go into teaching, where did you go after UNC Chapel Hill? All right, I stayed there th- through going through the ranks and did the research and the teaching and then I had the opportunity my, uh, to do this little short-term uh, opportunity in management, and I decided, hmm, maybe uh, advancement as an administrator in higher education was for me. And, I, and so my last two years at North Carolina, I started a three-year MBA program. And so the last two years at North Carolina, I started on that, and then I moved 30 miles away to NC State, which was interesting. Yeah. Uh, well, they and, knew you were recruiting for them already. So you're right. Like, we need <laughs> that was it. <laughs> <laughs> and so my, my third year there, uh, my first year as department chair there, I finished my MBA. And that was really to prepare me as, a, as an administrator in higher education. So I stayed as a department chair there. So at this point, you have a Ph.D. from Ohio State in, in what again? Sport history, actually. Sport history. And my master's was in sport administration. Sport administration. Master's sport in administration, Ph.D. in sports history, and then an MBA from UNC Chapel Hill. Right, right? Okay. correct. And yeah. then at this point, you're already the department chair. At NC State. At NC State. That is quite the career. Well, and then I had the opportunity, which I was very fortunate to do, uh, to participate in something called the American Council on Education Fellows Program. It's actually a presidential training program. They select about 35 people nationally, and I was very fortunate to get that opportunity, and I spent a year working with the president at Webster University in St. Louis. I wanted to go to a private school because I knew I'd never work in a private school because I'm a public school kind of person. And I wanted to see how private school worked, so I spent nine months working with President Perlman and learning about a private institution. And at that particular point in time, I knew I did not want to be a college president because they basically raise money, and that's not what I wanted to do. And so I went back to NC State a couple more years because you have to go back. And then I had the opportunity to be dean of the school, or excuse me, college of education at State University of West Georgia. And I always tell people that was the first college of education I was ever in because it just so happened that my previous two institutions were in a different academic unit. So I was president, or excuse me, dean of uh, 
a college of education and the first one I'd ever been in. And I think the MBA helped and then the experience that I'd had with some of those other programs. So I was dean there uh, for a few years. And then I went to the, North, uh, to the University of Kansas as dean of their school of education and spent some time in that particular role. And then when I decided I just wanted to get out of ed- at higher education administration, I decided it would be really good if I was gone when my replacement came in. So I uh, was able, fortunate enough, to go to the United States Military Academy at West Point. And I went there as a faculty member. And, and what, what year is this? 2005-2006. Uh, okay. So I, I had a wonderful opportunity there. I did some curriculum work for the Department of Physical Education. Had a great experience, learned how the military worked, got involved with their ethics program, and learned a lot about how the, the military academy prepares leaders, both of which I, I like to teach in as well as read in. Then came back to Kansas, was a member of the sport management faculty there, and then I'm in my third year now at Texas Tech, so I left Kansas and came here. Uh, I wanted to take on a new department that had a wonderful opportunity to be a change agent. And I'd gotten out. I'd kind of rested, I guess you will, from higher education administration. I'm not looking to move up, although at one point in time I wanted to be a provost, but I decided I didn't want to do that either. I love being a department chair. I love trying to shape our program here at Texas Tech to, to do some really exciting things. So. I'm perfectly happy doing what I'm doing now. Mm-hmm. So kind of uh, taking a step forward here in terms of how you are as a professor here uh, and specifically with your experience in ethics and sports ethics, that's kind of the direction I want to take this. I want to know how you got to be a big advocate of enforcing ethics within sports and morality, you know, and and in certain situations that you may have seen throughout your career that weren't so ethical or were ethical, great examples, bad examples, and just kind of how that's affected you and why you think it's important for people to be thinking along these lines. Well, I'm, I am a voracious reader. I probably read one or two or three books a week. I, I, I read while I exercise, which is I do every morning, so they fit together. But the more I would read in the area of, of sport – the more concerned I became. And I think it's really linked with my sport history because I read a lot. One of my favorite uh, authors is a, a gentleman named Robert, or excuse me, Ronald Smith, who is a longtime sport historian at Penn State. And he writes about the history of college athletics. He's got three books on that particular area. And he played college tennis. He went through the system, was a recipient of a grant and aid kind of thing. But he began to look at them historically and say, we have a problem here. And then after reading those from a historical context, I just began to read more, and I I branched out. And as I began to study the probably intercollegiate athletics and then a little tangential to women's athletics, those are the areas that I probably know most about because I've read the most in those areas. And I'm a big justice, fairness, equity person, and I saw what opportunities meant to me when I got just a little glimmer of an opportunity to play sports. And I'm thinking, I want more of that. Or I would talk with someone in a, in a non-popular sport, i.e. non-revenue producing sport, and I'd say, you know, isn't it great you have this opportunity? And I could see what it meant to them. I am a big advocate of intercollegiate athletics. I think it is a wonderful extracurricular opportunity for students. I think it can teach character. I think it can teach leadership. But my concern is when I see those being under undergirded, um, when I see that 
instead of the good always surmounting the bad, there's a little bit of bad that creeps in, and it, it's it, and because of the the media explosion in our country, I've just seen it over my career get worse and worse and worse. And so I think the ethics comes in when I it almost feels like exploitation with some people. And when I see that, I want I want to to write about it. I want to expose it. I want to I want to challenge the status quo because I don't want to ruin something really good. It would be almost like um, free play in the backyard, and you want children to play and have a good time. But when somebody comes in and changes all the rules, and then the kids don't get to have fun anymore, you think, no, sports are supposed to be fun. Let's not make all these onerous rules or let's not make the big bully take over the game or something like that. And so I think it's because of reading about things and, and questioning them and saying, ooh, let's, let's, let's eradicate the bad and let the good just kind of roll over everything. When do you think are the times when athletes stop having fun playing sports? And why do you think that is? Well, I think... Let me, let me go back to when I was began coaching. Every athlete that I coached at North Carolina played the game, I believe, for fun. They weren't worried about what pair, how many pairs of shoes they were going to get or what kind of hotel they were going to stay in or what kind of grant and aid they were going to get. They played because they loved the game of basketball. It was such a pleasure to teach them, just like when I was an assistant coach at Ohio State. Because you could see the 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 love of, of of the game, but it was it was balanced. It was balanced with their academic work. It was balanced with their family. I mean, when a, when one of my athletes, and this is not a, not a stretch of the truth, when a athlete would be you know st- distracted, and I'd find out what it was wrong, what was wrong, and they had a big final exam or a big test the next day or something like that. I would say, well, what are you doing here? Why don't you go? Why don't you go study? I remember a gal coming to practice, and she was like in another world. And I said, "What's wrong?" And she said, "My parents just called, and they're going to get a divorce." And I just looked at her and I said, "What are you doing at practice? Go home." I mean, she literally walked out the door to try to help save her parents' marriage. And um, there is a good news to that. I, something saved it anyway. They stayed together. And so. I like I like sports to be on balance, and then when you when you have the distractors out of there, then the the just the love of the game, and I think when when um, let's just take the early part of October, when players are getting together to play before the season begins, they're just playing hour after hour. They're playing because they love the sport of basketball. Enter the coach with a whistle and three six hour practices later, whatever it might be, and all this other things, all these other things they have to do, they tend to take the fun out of it. Or if they see that they're being uh, exploited, and and trust me, we've got a lot of college students that think they're being exploited. It's those kind of things that take the fun out of it. When, you, when they know the rules say 20 hours a week and they know they're spending 45, that's taking the fun out. When there's no time to go out with your friends, when there's no time to study for the test, but yet you have to keep your academics up. When they when they see coaches making you know fifteen thousand dollars a day and they can't you know go out and have a pizza and a coke, they feel exploited. And so when when athletes feel that way, it takes the fun out of the game. I realize that you can you as of now you can get four year grants, but most 
at grants and aids are not for a year. And when the coach says you're supposed to be putting weight training sessions in and practice sessions and you got to keep your grades up and yet in order to do that, you've got to spend all those particular hours doing that. And then if you don't do that, then the coach is not going to renew your, your grant and aid for the next year. Basically, the athlete feels like that they're not in control. Even though they're 18 years old and the law says they're adult, they don't think they're in control of their life. And they, to a large extent, are not. And, you know, I cannot imagine my undergraduate years, which were wonderful years in my life, being told what I could or could not do. I played basketball in Arkansas because I wanted to. And I was very, I was a good student. I was involved in cuisillian uh, extracurricular activities and oh yeah I played basketball too but I could balance that and today there's so much about the athlete's life that it's just absolutely controlled and I won't give any details but you know I can remember an athlete talking about a coach not letting them go to a game of another sport thinking wait a minute a coach can tell a player that they can't go to a a, a, a sporting event of in their own university it kind of makes you scratch your head thinking uh that seems a bit out of bounds absolutely <laughs> what like at the time when they start to essentially forfeit how every other student of the same university would be able to live their life and and take advantage of the culture that you are living in as a college student it's kind of kind of just an amen to that life right i mean mm -hmm. that's that shouldn't have to happen to anybody who plays just or just because they're playing sports and for college or university. And I might just add that this athlete was not in a revenue-producing sport, but yet was being told this. And the be like other students is really important to these young people. I've heard before that athletes actually, they kind of have like this, they looked at it from the to totally opposite perspective where they should all support each other. And that if you're an athlete of a sport, you should go attend as many other games as you can. And not only that, they set up like a point system where if you go to these games, you have you can check in with the right... For one, they can all go for free, at least at this university. Um, you go and check in, and whoever, whichever team has the most points towards them uh, for attending other sporting events, they get thrown like a pizza party or something like that at the end of the year with the college funds. Mm -hmm. One of my most riveting extracurricular experiences at West Point was the football team started supporting the women's basketball team. And they'd come, and, and they would not necessarily stay the entire game, but they would just sit in the end uh, of the court, and they would cheer the team on. Well, the women's team had a brand-new coach that year, and they just, uh, they just turned the season around. They started winning. Well, you'd go to the games, and there'd be more football players come. I don't think there was any point system or anything. They were just, hey, these are, these are other cadets. And they, they kept going and they kept going and the, and the women kept winning and they kept winning. And it was like there was this, this just unbelievable connection. Well, tragically, the coach, after the season, literally died of a major problem that I don't have time to go into. Mm -hmm. And at the memorial service, you can imagine who was there, which was almost every member of the football team, in mm -hmm. addition to the basketball team members who were just, just distraught. But the camaraderie 
that that built between teams was just amazing. Absolutely. And that's the fun, that's the purity of sport right there. I just thought that was such a great experience, I mean, a great example of that happening. Absolutely. How that can totally bring them together because they're mm-hmm. kind of part of a bigger family. Mm-hmm. You know, the culture shouldn't have to change to the point where they're not experiencing college as a normal student. It should really be enriched, as you said earlier, by the fact that they all play sports together. They're different sports, but they play together. They can have their own uh, experiences as a college athlete with having that type of freedom. I mean, it really can just improve their life in so many different ways. And it, and it, and it really did because there's a, there's a gender issue still at West Point because obviously until the 1970s, there were no female cadets. And to see that cross-gender and for the football team to be supporting the women's basketball team, I think it, it really trickled around to some of the other sports and it really brought, the I thought, the cadet corps together. Yeah, I can imagine. I want to hear more of your thoughts on this. You had mentioned how basically when the sport stops being fun and they're not doing it for the purity of enjoying the sport, that they really don't like playing that sport anymore. However, you are somewhat of an advocate for allowing college athletes to receive essentially some amount of money for their services. Some people would argue, I'm not saying I'm one of them, but I'm saying some people would argue that that takes away the enjoyment of the sport. So what differences do you see there exactly? Well, I think one of the reasons that athletes really want to get more financial remuneration for their sport is because of the number of hours they're putting into it. So I think there's two different issues there. Uh, by self-report, NCAA data itself, in the mid-30s to mid-40s per week are the number of hours across all sports at the NCAA level, regardless of division, Division One, Two, II, or Three, uh, highest competitive level in the Power Five conferences, soccer to football kind of thing. And so when athletes are putting in that number of hours, they don't have time for a job, even though in more, very recent years they can get a job, but they don't have time to do anything else, and so it does become a job. Well, if you're getting a job, you expect to get paid for that job. And so the idea, there's something called equivalency sports in the NCAA, and most sports, most people do not realize this, are what are called equivalency sports. Most college athletes, say there's 450 or something at Tech, most of those athletes are not on a grant and aid, and if they are on a grant and aid, then they're only getting a portion of a grant and aid. And so the baseball team might have a eight, let's say, of grants and aids, but they're split up maybe among 20 players or something like that. And then there might be 35 on the squad, et cetera. So you've got a lot of people who are walk-ons. You've got a lot of people who are getting a piece of it, like books or maybe room and board. And so very few are getting the full grant and aid. But yet all of them are putting in 35 to 45 hours a week. And so I think what what the players are saying is we need to get the equivalent of a part-time job, if you will, because we're putting in those number of hours. And if you transfer over to basketball, men's and women's side, or football, and I believe it's volleyball and tennis on the women's side, those sports are full rides. And for those full rides, the athlete absolutely feels like the coach owns them. So those are the athletes feel like when they're putting in those number of hours that they need to get paid literally the equivalent of what it costs to go to college. And that's that's really my point on on 
It's the cost of education. Let me give you a little bit of background. The NCAA, for most of the years of its existence, did not even permit grants and aids. They didn't permit them until 1957. At that point in time, they were, they were based on need. That went out the door, and then eventually they became what exists today, tuition fee, room, board, and books. Well, in the 1950s, tuition fee, room, and board was in a different world. You didn't have all the technology of today. Almost all students lived on campus, and it was a very, very different style of living compared to what students' style of living is today. For example, mo almost every college student has a smartphone, a tablet, a laptop, or maybe all three, and those come with a price tag. But yet they see everybody else walking around campus with that, but tuition fee, room, board, and books does not include that. And so there's factors like that. There's just simply the inflationary cost of going to college. And I went to college a lot, a lot uh, several years ago, and I know how little it costs for my parents to put me to, through college, and I appreciate it very much, I might add, but it's a whole lot more now, thousands and thousands of dollars more. And tuition fee, room, and board, and books is just a piece of that. And so when athletes put in the hours, they expect some payback, some payment for them to go to college and for it to at least approximate what it costs them to go. And so the, I believe that athletes should get that. I'm, I'm not for writing them a $50,000 check or anything like that. Right, right. I am for them having not necessarily a Mercedes car to drive around campus, but having what their peers have because they can't get a job and so many of them don't have the opportunity to, to, to earn extra money to pay for the incidentals of college. Which that, and that's the point that I think goes overlooked a lot because people will argue for paying college athletes, but they think that that argument entails like type of salaries that an, a professional athlete would get to. And it's not even, not at all, maybe not what they're arguing. Some people maybe, but they don't really know kind of probably the financial <clears throat> background to all of that. Yeah, and what's related, I mean, just think about students living on campus not having to have a car versus all right, now you have to have a car and you have insurance and you have gas and upkeep and all that. And all of a sudden, that runs into hundreds of dollars. And so it's, it doesn't mean that they need a huge amount of money, but they need what it costs them to go to college. And so whether it's soccer on the men's or the women's side or football, they still have to pay the bills of going to college. And I think that's what the athletes are saying. If I'm putting in that much, I'm, I'm wearing that jersey of my alma mater, soon to be alma mater, we hope, then treat me fairly. And somebody, somebody, the biggest argument that I hear is, well, the university does not have the money to do that. Well, I beg to differ with you. I can run the numbers. I teach sport finance too. It's how we choose to use our money. And that's the key factor. I don't know of a single person who thinks they need to get a, a salary of $50,000. But pocket change, to walk around and buy something from the snack machine if you need to kind of thing, or to, to put a tank of gas in your car, or whatever it might be. I think that they, wanna, they want a style of living that's comparable to their peers when they know their peer has a part-time job. Maybe it's on campus, maybe it's off campus. And so it's, it's, it's also counterpositioned with what they see other people getting. And by that I simply mean I know of a coach, I have a coach in mind, his salary for, for being a very successful coach is $15,000 a day. 
I could not possibly spend $15,000 a day, and I don't know very many people who can't unless they have your own jet. But an athlete sees that, and an athlete says, I, maybe I get $1.50 a day, <laughs> something like that I could buy something. And when they see the disparities, that's, I think, what gets athletes upset, and they say, just give me some, some, some walking around money because I see what other people are benefiting. I see, see cars being driven around by people in the athletic department. They have salaries high enough to buy those cars, but that's a perk they get or a country club membership or whatever it might be. The athlete said, there's a lot of things we could get rid of so that the athletes would be feeling like they were on a, on a, on a level playing field, so to speak. I think you, you back up and you simply say nobody – whether they're an entertainment business or they're a coach, deserves three, more, three or four million or seven or nine million dollars. Get the salaries down to a reasonable level and then work up your budget so that every athlete that you want to put the jersey of your, of your team on has their college education paid. And that's doable. And you might say, well, how is that doable? Well, we could take out a lot of the luxuries that are built in facilities. We can take a lot of the staff members that are not necessary. And you might say, well, that takes care of the sort management career. Well, there's other things they could do. But there are a lot of people who are hired by an athletic department and paid nice salaries, people all over the, 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 the program, so to speak, that might not be needed if you just step back and say, okay, if we have 450 athletes and this is the cost of, of them, their, their cost of education for every one of those, Let's start there with our budget, and then let's apportion out ticket sales and money we get from the state or from student fees or whatever, and run your budget. But what we do is we start with these very elevated salaries, and then we it's almost like the, the oh, our players, our workforce, if you will, they're like at the bottom of the rung, and so let's start there. I mean, it would be comparable to a, a person saying, all right, we need food, clothing, and shelter in our personal budget. Well, we put those at the top. And then you worry about whether you can buy a new car or not. Food, clothing, and shelter is a pretty high thing for you and your family. And so the, the athletes that, you're, that are the heart and soul and the core of your program, start with them. The NCAA's big stance, as far as I understand, and maybe you can correct me here, is that they don't want their athletes – and I say their athletes, that should probably be in air quotes because they're not really their athletes, to benefit um, in particular in any way outside of what they're already benefiting from. Sorry to be blunt here, but the NCAA is hypocritical. And by hypocritical, I simply mean their, their comeback each time is they don't need money, they're getting an education. I've heard Mark Emmert say that on many, many occasions in, in different settings. They don't need to be paid. Tuition fee, room, and board is all they need. They're getting an education, some of the finest education that costs $50,000. But they're not getting bored, though, right? I mean, if, if Emmert makes that argument, it's not true. It's not true. First of all, they're getting an opportunity to an education, maybe. Maybe, yeah. The recent number one pick in the NBA draft basically laughed off being a college student. That's not what he went to his institution, in this case it was LSU, mm -hmm. to get. And the whether you talk it's one and done, you talk it's three years in the NFL, or 
before you go to college or after three years if you play at one of the large schools in baseball. The bottom line is they're getting the opportunity to get an education. Don't ever forget they're doing a full-time job as an athlete. And, oh, yeah, if you have time to study, that's a really good thing. And don't worry about it. we got tutors over here to help you write your papers and stuff. <laughs> so they always hide behind we're giving you an education. Well, let's, let's back off a little bit. What universities are in today is what's known as an arms race bigger and better stadiums and facilities and training and practice and all that, the best coaches around, which is another thing Mark Emmert always talks about, paying them top dollar. Yeah, you're paying them millions of dollars or hundreds of thousands of dollars or whatever. But the NCAA is hypocritical because they say, but you're missing the most important thing from the perspective of the young 18 to 22-year-old athlete, which is a quality of life, a minimal standard of living to perform for your particular institution. And what's happening is the NCAA is making all those decisions paternalistically saying, I know what's good for you and you need the opportunity to get an education, a highly paid coach, glitzy facilities. No, actually, we'd like some pocket change. Actually, we would like, instead of 17 different configurations of the uniform, we would actually like to be able to take a, a significant person in our life out for a date. And, but the NCAA refuses to go across that line, which is called paid. Well, I've used this example in classes uh, over the years. Everybody thought that paying players, whether it's a $500 bonus for getting a gold medal or a $50,000, whatever it is, that it, in the Olympic movement, if you brought in money, it would taint it and nobody would ever watch the Olympics. Well, history has proved us that's not valid. People would still watch Big 12 football, basketball, football, whatever it might be. And so we hide behind, right, we got to follow the rules and they have to be an amateur. They have to not receive any money. Well, that's ludicrous. They're getting the equivalent of money in a grant and aid. They're getting a lot of money in a grant and aid. The problem is that grant and aid is just insufficient in 2016. It was pure, in quote marks again, in the 50s because television was just beginning. When you have payouts right now, the NCAA is pulling in uh, over a billion dollars on March Madness. Just let that sink in a second. Over a billion dollars on March Madness it's pulling in. And... It's spending a lot of that money on championships and non-revenue-producing sports, and I understand that. The athletes can read the newspaper just as well as we can, and they know that's happening. They know what coaches' salaries are. They can read that. They know how much money is being spent on facilities. And the athletes see the hypocrisy of it because they say, we're not asking for professional athlete salaries. We know, most of them anyway, that they're never going to play professional sports. They want a fulfilling college experience that treats them with just fairness and decency. And the thing that kind of links to what you were just saying, everybody kind of beats up on the NCAA, and they deserve every bit of it. But also a couple in this are the, the Power Five athletic departments who are making those financial decisions too, and they're the ones that vote the NCAA rules into effect. And a lot of those decisions are made to not change the status quo. And the status quo is a very, very healthy athletic industry, if you will. And the rich are getting richer. 
and and the athletes can see that and you know you can use the old cliche I just want a piece of the action I just want I just want a little bit of fair treatment and usually when when people get frustrated enough and I'll go back you know 150 years when unions came up in 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 post industrial revolution when it got so bad that the workers felt so oppressed then they unionized and that may be what happens in college athletics, and Northwestern sort of gave us a, a, mm-hmm. a, a glimpse into how that might happen. So the idea of when you have an exploited class, eventually the exploited individuals rise up and say, I'm tired of being exploited. And a lot of the current lawsuits that are out there are about being exploited or feeling that you're being exploited. And what's interesting in higher education to me is that we are so cautious in our academic side of the of the shop, so to speak, to fair treatment, due process for students. We would never treat students in our classes the way athletes perceive, at least, they're being treated athletically. Now, the perks are they get to have fun in, in the sport that they love to play. But at some point in time, they think, wait a minute, I have some rights, too. We're, we're, why can't I get some benefits for my rights and if we again if we treated them like students like that in our classrooms we ought to be fired but yet because this hovering power that's held by coaches and athletic directors and so on the athlete feels a little helpless really quickly because I think the 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 key here is that you're not arguing that they be compensated at all close to what professional athletes are paid but that it be fair that they be taken care of Mm -hmm. because they are a workforce and I, and I can 100% get behind that, you know. And I even proffered up an idea one time the, of why can't they just get paid at least minimum wage in their respective states for the 20, 30 hours, you know, usually 40, that's off the book, but <laughs> things like that. Minimum wage is all. Would, would at least give them something to start with. That can at least establish this foundation where they can all of a sudden say, well, okay, you know what? This is more of a business than we originally let on. Now let's move forward with that and see where we want to go. I feel like something like that could be a solution, but maybe that just goes to show how simple my mind is in all this. Well, but I, I think it's a great solution. The problem is you're not you're, you're undermining in the perspective of some people the NCA's power or the athletic director's power and why would we want to change the status quo? Because we rather like it the way they, it is. And that's, I think, what the athletes see. That probably every one of the athletes at this institution or others would jump at that chance because it's, it's, it, it just steeps of fairness, mm-hmm. of, of some equity. I like that you know, kind of thing. And I bet if you, if you pitch that to athletes, they'd say, where, where do I sign on? <laughs> right, yeah. Well, we'll see. Maybe, the, maybe I'll make a career out of that, right? <laughs> Well, I think we should probably wrap things up here, but thank you so much for your time. Before I let you go, though, I'm very curious, specifically two questions I want to ask you, and these are not off at all, not what we were talking about, but just kind of off of your life. Who is the most influential person you've come across in your life because you've had so much experiences in so many different parts of the country? And then I'll ask you the second question after. Well, it, it would actually have nothing to do with my career. It would be my parents and... You asked me, how did I get into ethics? It's because of the values my parents taught me. And the second thing that they taught me was to value education and learning. And throughout my career, I've tried to pass that along to my students, to value learning, lifelong learning. And 
Uh, my father taught me to love sports, so that's obviously an influencing factor. Uh, but my mother told me to keep sports in balance, and that also is invaluable. So oh. my parents were the most important influences on my life, no doubt about it. Certainly sounds like a great balance. And then the other one's a little more basic, but I'm very curious because I love reading, and I know you do too. What's your favorite book you've ever read, most influential, whatever for whatever reason? Well, you're going to be surprised with this, but it's the Bible. I'm I, not surprised. <laughs> I'll, t- I'll tell you why in a sec. Okay. It, it, I, I read it daily, and it, it, it keeps me grounded. And I don't try to proselytize other people or anything mm-hmm. like that, but it, it, it makes me who I am as a person. And that's shaped, I think, and given me the opportunities to think that I've had throughout my career because I think I've been very consistent with those values. That's great. And that would certainly that would seem consistent with how I know you. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing so much. All of your experiences and your insights. It's been lovely. It's, it's my pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you.